0: Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust, our podcast series which examines from a range of different perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Today's podcast was recorded in front of a live internet studio audience bringing together people from across the UK, so therefore you might notice the sound quality in some parts does reflect this. If you don't have a seat at the table, then you're probably on the menu. So said American Senator Elizabeth Wilson in her campaign to involve more women in politics. Here, Wilson was advocating for inclusion, for more women to be involved in decisions affecting their lives, for a political process that was designed to better involve women, their expertise and lived experience, and for resulting policies that not only worked better for women because of this, but which also led to better policies and programs for everyone else in wider society too. However, this call for inclusion for a seat at the table for underrepresented or overlooked groups hasn't just been constrained to politics. So in this special edition of Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust, we're looking at inclusion across financial services, energy, water and telecoms. And more specifically, we're focusing on the inclusive design movement, where the design of everyday products and services from essential services considers real people with a range of real needs rather than perhaps being built around the more abstract concept of the average consumer. So today we're asking, what exactly does inclusive design mean for essential service providers and consumers? Is it really commercially realistic for firms to not only think about the needs of vulnerable, disabled and underrepresented consumers when designing every product and service, but to also go one step further and directly involve these consumers throughout the design process? And if we do involve consumers in the design process and have them sat firmly at the table, how do we do this in a fair, sensitive and meaningful way? So joining us at the uh, vulnerability uh, matters table today to discuss all of this and much, much more are Bailey Curser. Hello the founder of Tuco, an award-winning research lab that specializes in helping firms develop products that are better designed for all customers. And Bailey is also the author of a new guide on inclusive design for firms, which launches today in a partnership between the Money Advice Trust and Fair by Design. We also have Rachel Edwards. Hi. A campaigner for products to be co-designed with people with lived experience and who has drawn on her own lived experience to help organizations such as Monzo to achieve this. We've got
1: Martin Kopak morning delighted to be
0: here lovely the director of lovely to have you martin the director of uh, fair by design an organization that is leading the drive to ensure that all essential services do not cost more for people on low incomes and martin is also one of the people behind a second new guide not just one on inclusive design for regulators that again launches today from fair by design and money advice trust and we're also joined by jenny smedley hello from Lloyd's Banking Group, whereas head of segmented customer support in the customer propositions team, she has helped develop Lloyd's trusted persons card, and more on that shortly. And David Atkins. Morning. Morning, Head of Customer Vulnerability for Lloyds Banking Group, who is responsible. Wow, this is a job for ensuring that all products and services consider vulnerability and disability. And of course, always at the table, live audience joining us today. Thank you very much for joining us. Please do get your questions in early as there are always too many to get through. So get them in now. Um, so first question, uh, everyone gets uh, 45 seconds for this one. So um, Bailey, starting with you, um, I don't know my uh, my inclusive design from my elbow, Bailey. So, uh, But a lot of people are talking about it. And today we've got two new guides. So in a nutshell, starting with you, Bailey, what does inclusive design actually mean?
2: So I think you've already touched on it, Chris. I think the way to describe it is to compare it to more traditional design. I think designers often approach design from the viewpoint of an imagined um, average person, average consumer. But that ignores the fact that there's a huge diversity of people with different experiences who might use products and services that we design. And particularly in essential services, of course, they're essential for everybody. We all need energy to heat our homes and a bank account to pay our bills. So inclusive design is a kind of toolbox that gives us those tools to design solutions that work for everybody, no matter their circumstances. And those tools for me boil down to three things. Number one is that we start designing with real people in mind, people who might have out of the ordinary circumstances, and that by designing with them and prioritising them, we can actually design better services for all. The second thing is that we include people with that lived experience throughout the process, because getting their constant feedback is the only way really to prioritise their needs. And the third is that actually, if we find that we can't design one solution that fits everybody... We need to make sure that there are adaptations so that people can use our products and services. Um, and so in the guide, we do describe inclusive design. But in fact, these same principles are largely the same if you talk about accessible design or universal design. And really, I think we can get into kind of jargon, spaghetti. Um, so really just thinking about the including of people is where we need to start. And that's why Rachel, I'm really thankful that Rachel's on the on the webinar today, because She's a great example of someone who we at Tuco have worked with in order to really leverage her lived experience and make sure that her views and feedback were, were really taken into account when we were designing.
0: Lovely. Thanks, Bailey. Rachel, uh, a build up there from Bailey. Uh, so from your perspective, Rachel, what does this term inclusive design mean to you personally?
3: Um, well, to me, it means designing a product, service, process or place so that it can be accessed by everyone, um, accessibility, low income and mental or physical illness.
0: And, and you've been involved in this as well, haven't you, directly?
3: With Tuco, yes, um, and because I suffer with mental health myself. Um, and I'm on a low income and I'm disabled. So yeah, I've been involved with it. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I like to be in something from the start to the finish and that's Mm. the way I hope it carries on.
0: That's right. And we'll we'll come to that in a a moment, Rachel. Martin, you've heard Rachel there saying about inclusive design being there from the start to the finish. Um, Does that form part of your, your definition
1: of inclusive design? absolutely um but before i um answer the question i just wanted to mention that fair by design is part of barrow cadbury trust um so inclusive design for me i agree with much of what's been said um but it will mean slightly different things depending on who you're talking to so for fair by design um it means starting with the consumer and working backwards And it means specifically designing out three things, exclusion, inequality, and unfairness. Bailey and her industry colleagues will talk about inclusive design for companies, but I'll be um, taking a step back and talking about inclusive design at a market level. So how do we ensure everyone has access to suitable products, meets their needs over over their lifetime, but importantly, at a price that they can afford and at a fair price. I guess if I was to crudely try to differentiate between consumer vulnerability and inclusive design, I would tend to say, whereas whereas there's been quite a lot of um, improvement, good work done on consumer vulnerability by both firms and regulators, I would say most attention has been around adapting to different vulnerabilities and using things like customer service and communications around putting things right right once harm's happened or about to happen whereas inclusive design is about always starting with the consumer in all their forms, especially the least heard, most poorly served, and working backwards from that to tackle potential harms upstream. Mm -hmm. So the prevention aspect is there is really important for you and um,
0: uh, Cadbury. Absolutely. Lovely, now Jenny and David, starting with Jenny, um, firms have to translate and implement some of this into practice, so really interested Jenny on what's your take on inclusive design?
4: So I think I would agree with a lot of what's already been said. Um, For me, it's about designing a proposition that can be accessed by anyone to help them achieve a specific outcome or task. And the way that we go about doing that is by developing that proposition to meet the specific needs of a segment of customers that are experiencing a particular set of circumstances. Um, But to the point that all the panelists have made, it's about including people and it's involving that target segment throughout the design process so that we can really deeply understand needs, issues, barriers. um, And, you know, through that kind of inclusion, start to finish, as we said, um, you design a product that meets the specific needs of that segment, but at the same time, should automatically address the needs of all customers so by really targeting on that specific use case and that specific segment hopefully you can address a broader set of needs as well
0: that's quite that's quite a challenge i mean we've seen that in wider society i mean the invention of the uh the electric electric toothbrush was originally uh stems from designing for people who might have uh, motor or physical disability issues but it's something that kind of a benefits everyone where it is when I can get my children to clean their teeth that is but it's it's quite a challenge David to to, to, to make this happen. What's your take on inclusive design and how it works at Lloyd's?
5: Yes so again agree with what the other panelists have said so far but for me inclusive design is around making sure that there's nothing in a product or service design that would preclude anyone from getting fair value from it. Clearly that's easier said than done But when it comes to, for example, vulnerability for banking products, I think the lens we need to look through is financial harm. How do we ensure by design that the product or service doesn't cause or increase financial harm to a customer who's in a vulnerable circumstance? So, of course, that means we need to understand how people with different vulnerabilities may use and interact with the product or service, what their needs are and how we adjust our design to address those. So that means kind of certain elements of the product may need to have some flexibility built in or there are other accessible communication or different channel types that we need to think about just to make sure certain customers' um, needs um, are addressed so they can use the product fully. So basically, we design products and services with this in mind up front.
0: So this is about not just making sure products are accessible. It's not just about ensuring products are, are usable. Uh, to a range of people, but also um, getting the best possible outcomes for them as well, David.
5: Absolutely, it's making sure they don't suffer any harm in the way that they use that product, not just the fact that they can access it.
0: Lovely. We'll come back to this. So Bailey, I'm going to I'm going to turn to you here, and then to to Rachel afterwards. Um, you've you've heard a lot there. Everyone's got a, a similar take on inclusive design, but there are there are some differences or some things that've been accented in there. So you've offered one of the two guides on inclusive design that released today. Would I be right in saying that the guide is really a call for arms to simply do their research when it comes to design, thinking about who might actually use their product or service?
2: Thanks, Chris. Um, Yeah, I I think you definitely have a really strong message in the guide around investing more in, in the research part of the design process. Um, before I, before I tell you more about the guide though, I just kind of want to highlight, I think everyone gave slightly different answers around inclusive design, but actually everyone talked about including people. And for the one takeaway from that, I really would love people to be thinking about how we can include voices. I liked how Martin terms it kind of the unheard voices as well. So people who, who aren't necessarily heard all the time. Um, so for the guide, it is absolutely call to action for firms, but I think it's more than that too. So, for example, I wanted to help people build a case internally for inclusive design. And so I've described my own experience and um, the benefits that we've seen at Tuco from using an inclusive design approach to design for vulnerability. We included some case studies that I think are really inspirational from firms of all sizes. And we addressed some common concerns as well so really helping people I think make the case for inclusive design secondly two sections in the guide talk about practical steps that teams can take to get started on an inclusive design journey so recruiting facilitating experts and experts by experience how to safeguard them how to get most out of sessions and there's a section that goes into detail about how to transpose the FCA's description of the design process into a firm. And then lastly, there's a toolkit of um, participatory design ac- exercises, activities that you can use in your firm when working with experts by experience. And I suppose like what I most want people to take away from the guide are two things. Firstly, that it's really crucial to include experts by experience when designing for vulnerability, in my opinion. I think it's arrogant of anyone to think that we can design effective solutions without including people who actually have that lived experience. And secondly, that it's really not difficult for any firm to start on an inclusive design journey. I think it can be really difficult for people potentially listening to hear all of these definitions and think, oh, my goodness, so much that we have to take into account. But I don't think everything needs to change on day one. And there are small steps that every firm can take and should take to get started to be more inclusive. um, And I've outlined those in the guide.
0: We'll drill into this a bit more as we go through a a, a conversation involving everybody. But Bailey, I just want to ask, to what extent realistically can people with lived experience be involved at every step of product development and for every single product? It's important, but is it always feasible? Uh, What's possible here?
2: I think it's possible to involve people with lived experience at every stage in the design process when designing all kinds of different things. I'm not saying it's necessary to do it every single time, but I do think it's possible and I do think that it will improve your design process. Um, I give the example, um, just as an example, in the guide of a company called Utility who used inclusive design when at the very start thinking about their business model so um, Martin also talks about it when designing regulatory policy. So, yeah, I do think that it's possible to use in all kinds of different scenarios and it can really benefit a firm. Um, one thing that I would pick up from your, your question is this idea that sometimes you can use an inclusive design and other times not. Kind of a binary way of looking at it. And I think that it's not binary in that way. For me, inclusive design is a mindset and different firms might follow that mindset to different degrees. Um, You might think of it as a spectrum. So firms can choose to become more inclusive by striving to include customers more and more in their process. And my argument would just be that it's always better to include the views of the people that you're designing for as part of that process. And So the question is, to what extent? So some projects might require months, years of research and feedback. But others, you may actually be able to get that feedback really quickly, like minutes or hours. So for me, it's more the mindset that's important rather than thinking about it as a kind of are we or aren't we inclusive design?
0: Mm. A quick comment from you, Bailey, before I go to Rachel. And how do we decide who's included? We'll, We'll pick this up a bit later, but I'm just interested. You know, there are a range of people that we might include in a design process who might be considered vulnerable or underrepresented. How do we go about deciding who is included?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a tough question and I don't think there's a right and wrong answer, but I think in the guide I talk about working with specialist organisations and charities. So, for example, at Tuco, we worked with the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute and um, we were able to um, find people in Rachel's situation and Rachel through through their work. So that was a really important kind of bridge to be able to access people who have that lived experience um, and I think the who you recruit is just as important as how you recruit them and how you, you, you um, involve them in your research. So really thinking up front about the kinds of people who will be up for being part of this process, will be able to contribute confidently, but also who, as we've talked about, are people who have additional needs or out of out of the ordinary needs. So um I do talk a little bit more about this in the guide, but I think it comes down to each project will require a slightly different way of thinking about recruiting um, experts and experts by experience.
0: Fantastic. Uh, I'm going to ask others on the uh, on the panel to come in. But uh, first, I'm going to ask uh, Rachel. Rachel, um, how involved in the design of products and services do people with lived experience want to be?
3: Well I wouldn't mind being from the start the middle and the end um, because I think uh, companies need to be responsible for the things they make which isn't always the case with loans or credit cards or other products. I believe that if they involve the public then their products and services will be much better and they should involve everyone because everyone should be equal at the end of the day Mm. and they're not
0: but it's often said though Rachel that being a consumer is a full-time job adding on top of that designing the products for firms and services it's quite an ask of people in terms of uh, time and engagement in terms of the involvement you've had um, how do you think you've been treated and involved Has, has it worked for you
3: yeah definitely um because it's gone from Tuco um, and it's gone to money and mental health. I've helped uh, Martin Lewis um, so, do a couple of things for uh, to do with mental health, um, like gambling and um, being in debit and stuff like that. So I think it all helps at the end of the day.
0: So these were uh, positive experiences for you. Um, Did it take a a lot of time uh, and investment from you? What were you asked to do?
3: Um, Well, it was like um, an app you downloaded onto your phone. um, And my mother happened to be, my mother worries sick about me. (laughs) Um, And it was to do with money. And she would have a text every day to say, contact Rachel, see how she's doing. And Mm. my mother was happy with that. So then me and my mother decided we started talking more about money and, you know, if I was in debit or if I needed help. And it it did help my mental health. And it did Mm. because I want I don't like to get my mother involved because I worry she's worrying about me too much. But it Mm. really helped. She was just gutted because it came to an end and uh, we still you know have phone calls every day so that's the main thing
0: that's good that's good Chris, always keep in touch with your mum go on was that Bailey coming in
2: yeah no I just wanted to add so um yeah Rachel was as, as she's just described you know part of our pilot um to test the app mm-hmm. we were also able to ask Rachel some questions before we even designed the app through a survey and uh, you might remember Rachel we sent you some designs to comment on I remember getting lots of feedback from you on that yeah. So it's, it's been, you know, lots of different things. And another example that Rachel and I were talking about a few weeks ago from a different company is, I think Rachel, you're involved with, um, Chip online, the kind of online forum. Yeah. So, you know, that's another example of an, an app that Rachel feels, um, you know, able to feedback on, but it's a less engaged type of feedback, right? If you, if you're able to give feedback via an online forum. Um so there's all kinds of different ways to get people's feedback, I think, and yeah it's it's great that I think rachel you you quite enjoy giving this type of feedback to the companies, don't you?
3: yeah, I really do, um, and it helps with my mental health because you're talking to somebody you know quite often um instead of being in lockdown and miserable <laughs> yeah, um, I find it much it helps um and it's well worth it i I find.
0: And did you, Rachel and and Bailey and others can come in here as well. Do do you think firms should pay for this involvement or are there other ways they can recognise people's time and engagement?
3: Maybe the government should uh, help.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, you need to make sure that people who are involved in the process and giving up their time and their energy and their emotional energy as well. You know, they're recognised and shown that they're valued. And I think there are diff- there are ways to do that that aren't just paying people a wage. But I do think that that's the best and most kind of tangible way if you're able to pay some money or a voucher or some some way that is actually going to value- show that you value that person's time. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to bring in um, uh, David and Jenny here, if if that's okay, um, to pick up on a a question that we got from um, Gareth McNabb, who's uh, now Director uh, of Policy at uh, Christians Against Poverty. And Gareth is asking uh, David and Jenny, uh, the unheard have gone unheard for so long that firms approaching them for this type of inclusive design. uh, approach may not have the, uh, and I'm sure this doesn't apply to Lloyd's, but I'm asking you to answer more generally, may not have the trust or credibility necessary to reframe that relationship. So the question is, how can regulated firms engage people, overcome these trust issues and, and make that engagement meaningful?
4: So I think I think Bailey spoke about um, using the bridge through the the money and mental health policy institute and certainly um, all the work that I do across the organisation developing propositions. We will always start with the customer and with research and we'll do that by working with research agencies. And I think it's about recognising that different agencies have got different strengths. Some are more suited to particular pieces of work than others because of the vast array of work that we do across the bank. So if I use an example, during during COVID-19, we wanted to run frequent research to understand the evolving customer needs given the incredibly dynamic nature of the situation. Um, And we knew that that was going to involve hard to reach audiences, talking about sensitive topics um, in new ways because we couldn't do that face to face. So we had to be very cognizant of that. Um, And also very quick turnaround because we needed to to get that information back so that we could respond to it very quickly. Um, And so we we chose an agency that we'd previously worked with on a a similar piece of research and and just got really great outcome there. So managed to meet to to reach those hard to reach audiences um, through working with that partner um and you know we're, we're able to um do that with trust um and you know took to the point you know that the, those those um those people participating in research would always be rewarded for their involvement of time um and expenses um, mm. so that, that that's, that's kind of that's kind of how i work you know through, through partnerships i think as well
0: no, absolutely D- david can i ask you this question from uh, martin camwell and um uh, martin asks, Do you think inclusive design means you have to design products and services that anyone can access? Or is it that there are appropriate options for different products and services across the brand that uh, eventually cover everybody?
5: I think the key thing is that we need to have products that satisfy the needs of our customers. And there will be different products that different consumers will find useful. And it's making sure that we've got the spread. Ideally, clearly, you want to have a product that works for everybody. And some of the universal products like basic current accounts, for example, you would want the ability for everybody to use without exception. Um, and that means you have to make adjustments where necessary to that product or different routes in to provide access. But there will always be products that are targeted to different segments of the market. I think the key thing for us is to make sure that we understand the needs of our customers and therefore, we have the solutions that they need. Mm. But just building on that previous point, I think there's another thing that's worth bearing in mind. Clearly, talking to consumers should be a cornerstone of our design. But it's worth bearing in mind there are other, other sources of information that we can use to give us an insight into what consumers need. So clearly, we can talk to charities that represent different consumer groups. We can understand the root cause of complaints that our customers make and talk to the customer to find out actually what has gone wrong. And therefore, is it by design that something has gone wrong that we can then fix? And indeed, in, in, indeed, speaking to our own colleagues, because our own staff have some of the same lived experiences that our customers have. And so their insight is incredibly useful as well.
0: That's really helpful. And it plays into a comment from Joanna Finley, who was asking about how do we create a culture of prioritising inclusion, of having this continual learning, and just jumping back to Bailey uh, before we move on to Martin and Martin's guide. Bailey, you we, we were talking about the uh, the different levels or a spectrum of inclusion, saying it's not mm. a binary thing. So as David and Joanne and others, uh, Martin, are, are maybe suggesting there, there are times when we are fully inclusive, uh and there are times when we use different forms of engagement and learning. Is is that
2: right? yeah i think different firms have different approaches um i think i believe that over time the design process will get better if you're able to gather more feedback and iterate quicker um from people who are going to use your product um but absolutely engaging with um charities specialist organizations reports there are lots of ways to bring that knowledge into a into a firm but I think the inclusive design process is about, you know, including people who are going to be using that product and service. Um, but, yeah, I think it's a journey. And what I would say is it's not about kind of day one reviewing your design process and changing everything and feeling like you've got to do everything differently. I don't think that's practical. I don't think it, it will work very well, actually. I think it's really about looking at your process, recognising what your firm already does to include um, user feedback because inevitably every firm will do so for example you talked about complaints like you have to review complaints and think about them right so those little examples can really build you can think okay what's the next step along from that how can we become slightly more inclusive in terms of how we how we get that feedback and how quickly we can iterate um so yeah I, i i've mentioned this in the guide um talked about different ways that firms might might start uh, and just use it as an experiment so um hopefully get some feedback on how well or not well the inclusive design element worked Mm. for them and then share that share that internally potentially share that on this podcast you know um and and be able to iterate from there
3: Mm.
0: so please come in yeah
3: Sorry, uh, well a good um, thing to look at is the government, um, they've decided to bring out universal credit um, and universal credit is only online, you can only apply for it online, which I think is absolutely ridiculous because there's loads of people out there that can't access the internet or don't know or haven't got broadband or you know are not the lucky ones, so that's just Mm. wrong and the government should never have done you know that and you know how how are people gonna understand with you know if you've got disability or Mm. if you've got mental health the last thing you want to be doing is you know doing this online
0: yeah. So it's, it's, it's taking, uh, it's recognizing, uh, the, the different communication needs would be an example of, uh, yeah. the inclusive design output there. Ma- Martin, I'm going to just move us on, a, a little bit. You've heard what Bailey and Rachel and others said here. You know, inclusive design is about, uh, providing products and services that a wide range of people can access and use. And, and we do that for including those people in the design process or moving towards that. However, people still have to pay for these products and services. So how can inclusive design help me as a consumer if I'm already struggling to pay for an essential service
1: like gas, electricity or insurance? Great question, Chris. Absolutely. We live in a society where the poorer you are, the more you pay for essential services, just like the ones you've just mentioned. Um, We call that the poverty premium. And as my fellow panellists have very articulate, very articulately explained, inclusive design can benefit both customers and firms. Yes, they make products better. Yes, they can create larger markets to sell to. And yes, there can be less problems, complaints because you've designed the product really well. But we do live in a competition driven market um, place. So firms will naturally design a market to those populations where they'll make the most profit. After all, they do have a duty to their shareholders um, and there will come a point when certain consumers are just not desirable enough for some companies to sell for or to sell to. And if they do sell, they'll charge more because they are deemed riskier or more costly to serve. Riskier is a good term to use for things like insurance and credit, for example. So three things can happen at that point. Those with the least resources and most vulnerable end up firstly not being able to afford or have to pay extra because they're deemed a higher risk and less desirable secondly they struggle to be able to access products and meet their needs because they are non-standard and thirdly um, they're just excluded altogether so then you have lots of consumers falling down the cracks and firms will not fix this by themselves because they work within a whole environment a regulated environment only if regulators and their sponsoring departments by the way intervene with the right policies and guidance to be created only then will people not be left behind and um, just going back to what um rachel was saying there about um government needs to learn lessons here um there's a real this is a real issue that we um, cover in the regulators guide for example um, there's an expectation now from the competition markets authority the financial conduct authority of gen that um firms should start in, designing their products and services inclusively however they need to do it themselves otherwise it's do as I say not as I do because I haven't created the environment for firms to um, make their products accessible or for certain market interventions to make sure nobody's left behind so the big question here is how do you put people and inclusion at the heart of policymaking making? And that's why we created the regulatory toolkit. And that has lots of stuff in there similar to what Bailey's been talking about around um, including people with lived experience.
0: Mm. So we've got these two guides today from uh, Fair by Design and Money Advice Trust. Uh, one is a, a guide for firms. The other is a guide for regulators. Now, if Martin, if people mm. were surprised by the idea that firms perhaps didn't include uh, consumers in the development of their products and services, um they, won't they be equally surprised that, that regulators don't do this? Yeah. <laughs> Would regulators recognise this description of themselves of um, not including consumers in their, in their decision-making?
1: Uh, well, Chris, as you know, I'm an ex-regulator. Um, spent many years bringing the voice, the consumer voice, into regulatory decision-making and not just in the FCA, but working with a range of regulators over my time. And the first thing I want to say is um, regulators are full of lots of passionate, clever and well-meaning people And they do want to make a difference for consumers and they're often expected to do a lot without enough resource. So prioritization is often the key thing. But as with all of us, you don't know what you don't know. If we work in a particular environment and many of our colleagues come from a similar background, it's difficult always to understand the lives of people who aren't quite like us. Now regulators um, commission loads of great uh, consumer research and inclusive design doesn't replace that. But one of the issues is when the regulator commissions re- research, often a decision maker has already come up with a proposed solution, which has been created within the confines of their own institution's remit and professional background. So economists and competition specialists talking about, well, wouldn't this be an ideal solution? But unfortunately, consumers' lives are just really messy and don't fit yeah. inside artificial boundaries such as regulatory remits. So unless we put, start with the consumer, where they're at, how they experience the world, and dare I say, it, ask them what would work best for them. We'll continue to have a market that is piecemeal in its approach, and people keep falling through the cracks. So let's start mixing the decision makers in regulators with people not like us, not like them. Um, otherwise, we, you know, we, we have this ad- adage. I think I've said that right: that um, empower consumers, drive the market. I've heard that for about 30 years now, but it just often doesn't work for people in poverty or multiple vulnerabilities. But how do you do this? In the Regulators Guide, we do provide information around this. Um, what we do um, is we team up with Toynbee Hall, a settlement in the East End of London that is very well trusted by their local community. People from um, with lived experience of poverty help drive our own strategy. But also, just as one quick example, Chris, um, we did a lived experience session with the Payment Systems Regulator recently because they are consulting on um, access to cash and how access to cash should be um, rolled out in the future, how it, how it develops. So we got decision makers together with people with lived experience of poverty. We helped the PSR, the Payment systems Regulator, with the questions. How to how to get the best out of people from the community to answer those questions, and there was just so many extra tidbits um, that decision makers were allowed to, that could go away with that they hadn't thought of um, themselves. And the big thing here is, and I really emphasise this, it's exposing the decision makers and senior staff to these types of sessions because often these these types of things will be farmed out to the consumer research department. Mm. What you need to do is to make sure that people who make decisions across the organization meet people not like them. Bill, it's it's magical when you see the building of empathy and actually people thinking I need to make this problem. I need to sort this problem out and make it a priority because I've seen what it means to people uh, who I would never have thought about before.
0: But Barted, but there's, there's a question here. It's kind of so the FCA might commission something like the Financial Lives Survey, a yeah. large-scale population survey. You're saying actually you need to get um, the people living those lives in the room with the decision makers. So my my, my my pushback to you is how do you decide which small sample of people you <laughs> put in the room with the chief exec of the FCA or Ofgem or Ofcom? Yeah. Um, because yeah, that gatekeeping of who joins that session is is really critical
1: oh absolutely and and also you will always get quantitative fans saying oh it's only a few people you can't make decisions on that first of all I really want to emphasize this is in addition to quantitative surveys and the financial life survey but um, in terms of who do you get in the room there's something um, here around working with the experts in the community who know the issues um, and that sort of not a dating service, but uh, that sort of bridge between the regulator and different communities by by sitting down and saying, "What is it you want to find out? What are the key issues around that?" and we can help you form the right questions and help form the types of people you really need to get at and it's it, it's it's an iterative process like inclusive design more generally.
2: yeah, because uh-huh. I, I completely agree. I think it is about bringing in specialists, people who really understand the issue. But I think it's it's two other points really as well. And one is exactly as Martin just said, it's an iterative process. And, and to think of it as people are just going to be in one room one time, I think misses the point. You know, it's really about making sure that the decision makers get a touch point with people who have different views to them often. Um, and then I also think, secondly, it's actually about building that empathy and just building that understanding that there are people with different views and different experiences. And sometimes it's not about touching every single person's circumstances when you do that. It's just about opening someone's mind up to knowing that they need to think about, um, these, these things during the process. And I've just been nodding a lot, by the way, as, as Martin's been talking, because I think so much of what he's saying about getting decision makers involved, applies across firms across all companies as well so um it really is about making sure that it comes from the top ultimately
1: i just wanted to add to bailey's point there about um the need to get across organizations unless you get leaders involved in the organizations it won't happen i know one organization did a fantastic inclusive design project and they said they were really impressed by the results but it won't happen again and i said why and they said, because for that project, we were told to do it and we were given time and resource to do it. After that, no resource was available. So we just went back to the default thing. So exactly. it's a cultural aspect here. Cultural aspect. Thanks, Martin. I'm just going to pick up on a couple of comments here. Howard
0: Gannaway uh, said, oh, it's interesting that paying experts by experience need not be financial. Would the ordinary experts be happy with that as well? I suspect not. Howard. Mm -hmm. And uh, a comment here from uh, Paul Wormsley, Um, uh, maybe this is one we can pick up in a moment, uh, David and Jenny, isn't a bigger challenge that even within one area of vulnerability, the scale and impact can wildly differ depending on the other myriad uh, factors that customers can face? Again, going to that issue of who do we involve? And uh, uh, Vida Harrison uh, is, has asked, well, she's actually asked the first question to Lloyd. So we'll, we'll, we'll go to, uh, we'll pick this up in a second, video. Um, how have Lloyds used inclusive design when providing a service rather than a product? So, Jenny and David, I'm going to turn to you. You heard um, what others have said on the panel. You've heard some of the comments from the people, uh, listening. Um, I'm really interested. We'll start with you, Jenny, and let's, let's, let's make this concrete in a product, your trusted person's card. Uh, which was uh, re- recently launched in response to the COVID-19 lockdown. You did this at lightning speed. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about this and how this relates to the notion of inclusion uh, and design?
4: You know, as a bank, we, we currently or you know previously had um, products services that that helped customers with with access needs, so with power of attorney, third party mandate, um, which allow a range of transactions and access. Um, However, when we spoke to customers about those things, what we heard was that they they sometimes perceived that they were permanent solutions and that they didn't have the flexibility to um to be relevant to them for kind of temporary needs, or that they were just too timely um, to set up and too lengthy to set up. Um, And we also know from research that customers who need help sometimes invent their own workarounds with with the help of friends and family members. And that those things themselves could actually be potentially be placing them at at greater, greater risk. So even before the pandemic, we'd identified this gap to support certain often elderly customers who face challenges that prevent them from easily accessing cash or shopping. and we were looking at how we might help them to enable friends and family members assist with, with those things. And then the pandemic happened. And as a result of that, and obviously that kind of, you know, quickly magnified the population that actually had that need because, you know, more people isolating or being advised to shield. Um, it just really brought into to focus the, the work that we've been looking at to date. Um, And and as an organization, we we, we really came together to develop a a set of targeted responses to to help improve access, which included the trusted person card. Um, so in in terms of what that that actual product is, it's a um, it's it's available on our three relationship brands on Halifax, Bank of Scotland, Lloyds Bank. We launched it on the 25th of November. It's a free card that um, a personal current account holder can apply for it's then issued to that account holder and they can share it with a trusted person. That trusted person can then withdraw cash and spend on behalf of the account holder. So that's the the kind of the fundamentals of what it is. Um, But when we spoke to customers, when we were developing this and and we had qualitative and quantitative conversations with customers, um, they told us that they valued control features what we also knew was that, um, you know, the, the, the people that would need help with their money for whatever reason um, could potentially find themselves at risk of fraud if products and services weren't mm-hmm. designed safely to accommodate that. So we, we really wanted to kind of put a number of controls in that could safeguard the customer. So, so what we did was, I guess, three things mainly. Um, we had spend limits. So withdrawals and spending are both limited to £100 each per week. Customers told us that they wanted weekly limits. Um, they, They told us what they felt was an appropriate limit. But I think to David's point in terms of using different sources of information, what we also did was to go back to our data on actual spend levels. So looking at that target segment and saying, what do they actually do? rather than potentially what are they saying they might want or um, um, or they they told us that they needed. Um, because what we wanted to do is to make sure we set those levels at the right level to protect and control, but also so that you didn't get experience high levels of declines when making purchases, because that's just not a great experience with a trusted person when they're in, in, in a shop, etc. And then the other thing that we did was to restrict by channel. So there's no account access for the trusted person through telephone, banking, branch, online or or post office, except for reporting that card lost or stolen. So, again, it's the account holder's money. We need all of that um, protection to kind of remain with them. Um, And then the final point, um, the third point around the the control that we put in place um, here was around the way that the customers can apply for it. So obviously it's only the card, the only the account holder that can apply. And they do that by phone. And their applications handled by our specialist trained um, representative access team. So that that was really important for us that this product was serviced by those colleagues who are experts in rep access, because it means that they can recognize the needs of customers and they can clearly identify the right product for the customer. So that might be a customer coming in asking for that for, for the trusted person card. But a power of attorney might be more appropriate or vice versa. Or there might be somebody, you know, coming in and actually those colleagues are trained to identify that what they're doing at the moment. There may be some workarounds that are putting them at greater risk. And actually, this is a great product mm. that can help meet their needs and, and, and provide them the control, but also that um, mm. that facility. And so, you know, it's a, it, it, through that. We're also, um, you know, making sure that the product works, works well, meets those needs, getting those levels of feedback as well, so that when we can think about how we can extend that and, and, and meet even more customer needs.
0: That's really helpful overview of, of the product. It's um, now, it's, it, this is interesting to me, um, because, um, there were previous calls from charities and people with lived experience prior to COVID, uh, for such a, such a product. But it seemed to take COVID to kind of push it over the line, Jenny. So it's it, what, what's your, what's your comfort? Would this have happened if we didn't have COVID 19?
4: I think, I think the honest answer is yes but perhaps not quite as quickly. Um, and I think that goes down to, um, as an organization, we we pivoted to focus on how we could support customers during the pandemic. And that kind of single focus meant that we operated at even greater speed on those, on those propositions that we were really focusing on. So we had already been exploring it regardless mm-hmm. of COVID-19, um, but the pandemic may have helped accelerate delivery. So you know, it was one of a of a wider um, uh, kind of group of propositions that we used to, to reach out and support customers with, um, with access uh, challenges, because we knew that, you know, with branches closed or operating restricted hours, with key workers working long hours and, you know, not being able to get in during those opening hours, potentially, you know, and then also there was much higher demand for telephone banking, that there were a number of things that we looked at. And through those Regular sprints of research, we kind of informed what we did there, and, and, and we set up dedicated helplines for over seventies and key workers, um, flexible branch process for care for for those with care duties, um, and and also we've we've now made over three quarters of a million wellbeing calls to customers over seventy just to check in on whether they need help um, mm-hmm. financially, but also from a wellbeing perspective, and sometimes we've spoken to people that haven't spoken to anybody for for days on end so i think mm-hmm. you know there was a a, a real kind of single minded focus on supporting um customers in this real kind of you know mm. national global time of need um that meant that we probably accelerated some of those things and you know trusted person card and yeah. say you know probably accelerated that
0: so, so, so journey, and then I'll, 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 ask David to also give a comment on this before moving on to another question for David. Francis McGee has, um, um, just noted, uh, really brilliant, a trusted person's card. But is this more an example of inclusively minded design as opposed to inclusive design? As we sort of heard earlier, um, it, it seems you built on, uh, a, a recognition of the needs of people in uh, vulnerable situations. Uh, as opposed to involving them in the development of this card.
4: Yeah, I mean as as, as I said we there were there were conversations that we've had with those customers so we've um or specifically on the proposition that we were developing mm-hmm. we had qualitative and quantitative research um that we did within with with an agency that I mentioned been helping us with the sprint research as well. Yeah. And um, we've also recently um undertaken some uh, research further research around the 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 care need um, so some um, kind of interview, um, teledepts with people who receive care um, and people who give care and actually some paired depths with people who are giving and receiving um, in, in, and have that relationship together. So absolutely throughout the process, we've brought in different parts of research Super. to inform the product development.
0: It's led to that inclusive design approach. So it's, it's about it's, it's certainly not criticism. It's, it's more about the reality of using the tools that you have and the data you have and the evidence you have to hand to make things happen. David, kind of, Lloyd's uh, banking group has something like um, 30 million customers, 65,000 staff, and scores of products, customer journeys, and services. Um, You can reflect on the trusted person's card here if, if it helps, but I just wonder how can you possibly follow an inclusive design approach, given that range of need and that size of a customer base?
5: and I think the the key message is that you just can't turn it on um overnight but it's something that you need to develop over time so we started at Lloyds our journey some years ago by making sure customer vulnerability is considered in how we develop and manage our products and over the years that has been developed and enhanced and we'll continue to build on it it's certainly not a case of once and done um But I think there's some key considerations when we look to build this in. And the first, I think, must be, and actually related to what Martin said before, is related to culture. We need to create and champion a culture that prioritises fair treatment so so that the people who design and manage products and services are clear that they need to ensure vulnerability, for example, is at the heart of their considerations and one practical way to start that is to make sure that internal policies and processes that the people need to follow are explicit on what the outcome is we're looking for. I think, secondly, we also need to look at the capability of our products and service managers and make sure they've got the tools that help them deliver those fair outcomes. And so in Lloyd's, for example, as Jenny has said, customer research is a critical part in the design of any new or change proposition. And it's fundamental to design and can include for example using the focus groups as jenny has said or indeed just clickable prototypes so people can actually try and break it for us um now we've we've got to show that we understand customer needs and therefore how we've delivered understanding those customer needs as we go through approval so it's really important that product managers can get to the heart of what they need to understand and demonstrate that they've done that before they can actually get any new kind of or change product through. Mm. And I think finally, for me, it's having the ability to monitor if the design is delivering what we're expecting. Um, And so we need to make sure we can show we are meeting the needs of our customers. And obviously you can do this through ongoing product reviews, checking service and performance data, but also testing outcomes with real customers. It's clear that there are risks in providing a trusted person's card to someone else, but there's also risks in not doing that. And so what you try to find is a balance so you can maximise the benefit but minimise the risk. But, for example, if someone is being abused, we have alternative routes and services that support customers who are victims of domestic or financial abuse. And, of course, we would leverage those if we found that a customer was being abused through the use of this product Mm. as well.
0: David, uh, in, 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 a, in a sentence, um, do you think all design colleagues are capable of inclusive design
5: or should we be thinking about specifically recruiting inclusive designers? Oh, it's a really good question. To be honest, it's not rocket science. And so I think anybody can learn this as a skill. And I, I think and I would hope the majority, if not all of our colleagues involved in this, actually do consider elements of inclusive design in the work that they do. The key is to keep on plugging away, keep on improving, keep on enhancing that that training.
0: Thank you, David. Um, we're going to put a, a poll up. Thank you, everybody. Just stay with us for the next um, 30 seconds. A lot of you have asked uh for uh the guides to be sent to you and also thank you to joanna finley for that last question probably the best of the rest uh, of the bunch in the podcast thank you joanna so you've got um uh some options there in terms of um what you would like us to do after this webinar i see that i'm um, getting me to record a podcast about an issue of your choice is in there uh thank you for whoever put that in there thank you very much um so As you're filling in that poll, please do kind of uh, complete that now. I just want to say a huge thanks to Bailey, to Rachel, to Martin, to Jenny and David for not just scratching the surface of inclusive design, but getting under the veneer. We can go deeper. I'm sure we can. And the guides will really help with that. Um, This is bringing the session to a close. Um, You've all been absolutely wonderful. If you want to find out more about our work, uh, moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability. If you want to hear other podcasts, search for Vulnerability uh, Vulnerability Matters on your podcast platform but until then please complete the poll uh and until we speak again uh, keep up the good work and we'll see you around thank you